Welcome to Arash's World today. Today we have uh, Sarah Payton and, and she's going to talk to us about a lot of very interesting things. So let's get started. Uh, how are you doing, Sarah? I'm very happy to be here, Arash. Thank you. Wonderful. What, what we like to do uh, always is for you to uh, start introducing yourself in any way you see fit. So how would you introduce yourself? Um, I am a, an author and I'm also someone who traveled, who used to travel around the world, teaching about how to heal from emotional trauma. Um, and uh, now I do it uh, for the last two years with the pandemic, I've been largely teaching online. So I, I'm a neuroscience educator and I think about and write about and talk about the way that we can leverage what we're learning about relational neuroscience and emotions to really give us an edge in healing emotional trauma. So healing the after effects of child abuse, healing the after effects of assault, healing the after effects of war. That's, that's my world. And I was once on a plane and the steward people, the host to air host people said, what, what do you do? And I said, oh, I travel around the world teaching people how to heal from emotional trauma. And they said, that must be so heavy. You must be so depressed. It's like, no, <laughs> it's actually effective. It's a wonderful work. It's life-giving. It's joyful. So that's, that's what Absolutely. I do. Absolutely. What a wonderful introduction. Um, so you also, uh, I read you are a certified nonviolent communication trainer. Um, what does that mean? And it sounds fascinating to me. Yes. In, so Marshall Rosenberg was the fellow who developed nonviolent communication. And what he was thinking about was the way that we so often use language unconsciously in ways that hurt each other instead of using language responsibly. It's a bit like he was the one who discovered that language could, <laughs> could be like a knife that you're holding in your hand and cutting other people with without even knowing you're doing it. And so he wanted to invite people to bring their conscious awareness to the ways that our words can harm each other and conscious awareness to the ways we can use language in ways that don't hurt each other and that really open the door to connection. So some people say that nonviolent communication is communication is, is, is a spiritual practice masquerading as a set of, uh, of conversation tools. <laughs> Well, that's the thing. I mean, words uh, stick with us. They can hurt us deeply. They can cut like knives, like you're saying, but at the same time, they can heal us. And that's so uh, if they can do bad, they can also do good. And uh, that's what I like to see. I, I like I like to see the positive side of things. If it has the power to hurt us, it also has the power to heal us. That's so true. And you're an author. So you have um, two books, according to my knowledge, uh, Affirmations for Turbulent Times. And that's uh, definitely uh, a yes. Turbulent yeah. times is not an understatement with what we're going through. And yes, please, more of that. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And you also have your resonant self from self-sabotage to self-care. Yes, I have the first book, Your Resonant Self, mm -hmm. the original book that's about the neuroscience of self-compassion. And then I would get out in the world and I would be teaching the neuroscience of self-compassion. And people would say, that's all well and good, but it goes against my integrity to be to have self-compassion. And I was like, how is that possible? Yeah, how is that possible? <laughs> and so then I discovered that people make unconscious contracts with themselves. And that's what this book is about, the Your Resonant Self Workbook. 
all about the unconscious contracts people make out of integrity and out of love. Like I will not be kind to myself because my mother was not able to be kind to herself and I don't want to leave her behind. Or I will not be, I will not have self-compassion in order to make sure that I become a better person because I, because I must be cruel to myself in order to make sure that I'm always get better and better and better. Those are very interesting things that we humans do to try to take care of ourselves. I love the term of unconscious contracts. I want to dive in there. Um, unconscious, yes, absolutely. I think a lot of us, and as we're saying, we, we sometimes don't mean to hurt other people, but we do it in an unconscious way. And or it might uh, unconsciously like affect them too when it's not meant to be as a, as a criticism or anything like that. But, um, and the idea of contract is quite interesting. So can you explain a bit what do you mean by unconscious contract? I mean, you briefly explained that it comes from trauma, but yeah. what does that do to us? And then the next question would be, how can we deal with it? Yes. So the way that we form these contracts initially is often in very early childhood before we even have words. We uh, discover the research of Beatrice Beebe has shown that when before we're four months old, we actually integrate the facial expressions that our mothers can make easily. And by the time we're four months old, we only make the facial expressions that she makes easily. Mm -hmm. Like if we're really angry, we'll make a big angry expression. Or if we're really sad, we'll make a big sad expression. But when we're in a face-to-face -face conversation or pre-verbal conversation with our mothers, will only do what she can do. It's like we learn to limit our emotional expression exactly to what our moms can easily be with in the regular conversational time. And, and then we carry that forward for the rest of our lives. So we believe that, for example, that it's not okay to cry. And so we'll always hide our tears or we'll stop crying altogether. Or we'll, we'll, uh, we'll integrate from our mothers that it's not okay to be angry but it's okay to cry but it's not okay to be angry and then women this happens for many women they grow up and when they get angry they cry and then that feels like it erodes their personal power because they want to just be able to be straightforwardly angry but every time they get angry instead of being able to be straightforwardly angry they cry they say why does this happen to me and it's because they have an agreement with themselves to turn their anger into grief because it's more acceptable and helps them belong. Oh, this is fascinating. Uh, fascinating stuff because it's, especially when we are born, that's our contact. And especially the mother is our contact with the world. And we see ourselves as one. So anything that they do or happens to them happens to us. And it's, it's only later on when we get to distinguish ourselves as, as a different person than them. But as you're saying, unconsciously, that sticks with us and can program the rest of our lives um, for better or for worse. And um, it's, it's hard to be a parent. And many, many people fail in various ways. And, yeah. uh, and we have the term a good enough parent, good enough mother and father. And, and, and I agree with that. And there are some who, who just not, who have the trauma from their own generation and it gets passed on and yeah. uh, intergenerational trauma as well. That does happen. Yeah. Although as we look at it, one of the very sweet and hopeful things is that even if it's bad, it's often not as bad as the parent's childhood was. Like the parent is able to make significant changes. I think it must take, they say it takes 
um, I don't know how, I, what's my guess on how many generations it takes to, to work the trauma out of a family? I would guess it takes like five generations that collective and historical trauma impact a family. Mm-hmm. And the family then, it, it, the parenting in the family is massively impacted. And then there's a gradual reduction of harm that happens over five generations. If no more historical trauma impacts the family, if there's no more war, if there's no more bombings, if there's no more pandemics, then people gradually begin to heal. But then when when the social stressors hit, then domestic violence rates soar and trauma re-enters the family, violence re-enters the family, and the whole thing needs to start over again. And you can't safeguard against it. I mean, that's so that's coming from our past. And then we're living in the present and there's more and more that is surrounding us. Um, so the best way to really deal with it, I think, is for me is twofold. One of them, be aware of it, bring it out into the open. And once that comes out, I think that's the step towards healing. First, yeah. the recognition, and then the path forward, uh, which uh-huh. is uh, something that we can use uh, neuroscience, psychology, and so on to deal with it. So let's dive into that. Yeah. And you have the term uh, relational neuroscience. I really like that. Yeah. So it reminds me of object theory as well, like relating to others and then how our brain absorbs and interprets things. So what is your advice here? Um, well, one of the things is that... Um, we may have part, we may know part of the unconscious contract. So we may know, uh, for example, that we'll never allow ourselves to be disrespected. This is a contract that often leads to violence if someone has this contract and often leads to cruelty to others. Because then we'll be on the watch for being disrespected all the time and we'll interpret all kinds of things as disrespect. And then there'll be a violent reactivity to being disrespected. So a person may know, I'm never gonna let myself be disrespected, but they don't know the depth of the in order to. So that's our first step after we figure out, okay, I'm pretty sure I've got an agreement here. I'll never let myself be disrespected. Now we wanna ask in order to, and there might be a very, you may may know some, um, uh, some very straightforward, response that you already know, that's not the unconscious part. So for example, you might say, I'll never be disrespected in order to keep myself safe from bullies. We bullied in childhood. But then that that may not shift anything because we haven't gone deep enough yet into the unconscious. So then we stop and we say, I will never allow myself to be disrespected. And in order to is, um, It's a very deep in order to survive. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like a, there's a, an acknowledgement of, of the ways in which really our life was in danger from people who disrespected us. That there was like in order to never have my, the, the outcome of whether I live or die be in anyone else's hands again. Now we're starting to touch something deeper that acknowledges the massive impact of violence and bullying cruelty on our own lives. One thing that I found fascinating too is the idea of the culture of honor. 
and we see how in certain uh, parts of uh, countries and uh, cultures it's practiced. So um, uh, in, in, in the southern U.S. and it's it's more prevalent there. And I was I was fascinated to see how that is comes a lot from previous um, lifestyles because you wanted to make sure that you were an honorable person so others would respect you and that way they would not also mess with you because you would defend yourself as uh, your, your property and so on. And all these ideas continue with us unconsciously. Yeah. And so um, people um, in certain parts are easily offended and they react in uh, what I would say maybe exaggerated ways. And so that's why you have perhaps, and that's why you have more homicides in Southern and the Southern yeah. parts of the US than in the Northern parts. Whereas the Northern part just shrug it off. It's like, okay, well, so what? You disrespect me? Okay, nothing happens, but it's taken more seriously. On the opposite side, Northern people, and that's uh, proven in, in, with studies in psychology, tend to be ruder, but more relaxed about it, whereas Southern parts are very respectful and polite, but inside there's this seething like passion of like, oh, you offended me, now I have to attack and fight with you. Yes, very interesting, isn't it? So then we have contracts that might be not just to this present time lifetime, but we might have honor contracts that go back for generations. I solemnly swear to my father's line that I will not allow myself to be disrespectful, disrespected in order to, now this becomes a deeper and different line in order to belong to my father's family, in mm. order to be a part, to be in order to be a man in this lineage. Part of your identity, right? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. In order to exist, yeah, as a as a as a man in my father's line or as a woman in my mother's line. Yes, and these are very and people might not think of this. And if they don't think of this, then that part remains unconscious and it's difficult to release the contract. As soon as we start to feel into what the unconscious part is, and then we say the words, no matter the cost to myself or my children. All of a sudden we go, oh, I guess that wasn't such a good idea. <laughs> and then there's a, there's a kind of a release. And I really recommend that people do a blessing for themselves. Like if you're not going to do this, what will you do? Sorry. And we're, we're, often, um, we're often triggered in various ways. And because this is something that personally affects us because of our own personal experiences that we had, most likely in childhood, and we uh, go on the defensive or we attack. And those are, again, two ways of, of dealing with the problem. Either one is not helpful. Either one will cause harm to our psyche. Yes, it's so true. We, ex we, we, and so the, the releasing of these contracts is really a movement towards peace and well-being and more freedom, more of a sense of freedom. Yeah. And we'll often have contracts not to do harm, but we live in a world where, you know, we breathe in and we breathe in a mosquito, you know, we kill it. It's like impossible to live mm -hmm. in a world and not do harm. But if we have do no harm contracts, they stop us from participating fully in life because we're trying so hard not to do harm that we almost become paralyzed. Absolutely. We, yeah, we have to live inside of our house and pretend that our house is doing no harm. You know, there's a lot of pretending that has to go on. Yes, yes. And, and acceptance. I think acceptance uh, of the whole package. 
-hmm. We are humans. And yes, a lot of us want to do good, but we also do bad and find a, a balance between those two things. And mm -hmm. I, I love the, the Tao and the yin and yang and that everything is kind of part of everything. And once you accept that, yes, there is a dark side, there are dark impulses yeah. and so on that we have within uh, ourselves, we can release it and then we're not driven by it. Right. And uh, But the people who don't accept that, they are secretly driven by these forces. And then it, it's like a pressure cooker. At some point, it will just break out and then it causes a moment of extreme violence and just, yeah. just horrible atrocities that are happening, which we see right now as well. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, it's so true. Yeah. Here we're living in a world that where we're so vulnerable to each other. We're so vulnerable to, um, to, to whether we have the capacity to withstand the the impulses that lead to war or that lead to violence. Mm -hmm. That's so true. I, I've, I've always seen the, the uh, COVID, I've seen it as a, a magnifying glass of like really accentuating uh, the parts of us that uh, needs to be looked at. So whether that's in terms of aggression, but it's also in terms of healing, because um, for me, it's, it's been, uh, it's, it's been a, a bit of both, but it's really led to a healing experience of we hit the pause button, we have to now be with ourselves. We have to think. We have to figure out which path do I take? Is this job for me or is it not? We have the great resignation that goes around. Is this life for me or is it not? Am I contributing to others? Others are suffering. I wasn't aware of this, but now it's come to the forefront. And we see it again on the world stage. Yes. And I, I see it as kind of like something like regulating things. The karma comes out, the good and the bad. And now we have to find a balance or a contract between those two and find a path that is um, good for everyone. Discover a new blessing. Exactly. And for the world. Yeah. yeah. I've often had this sense with COVID that, um, that the way that we live is like we're constantly overdrawn it's like we're always overdrawing our checkbooks the whole system that includes poverty and the ways that children are impacted by poverty and um and the ways that we all kind of live in our own little castles in the west at any rate um is is exhausting is essentially exhausting and that there's a way that there's an exhaustion in humanity and that what we need for, for, for to to recover from COVID is just way more rest than we could ever have imagined. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's why the the four day work week sounds like mm -hmm. a good idea. It's it's a, a right step in 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 a good direction. I think that uh, we are uh, overburdening ourselves, mm -hmm. and it's it affects. I mean, both. I mean, we look at the the rich and the poor, and they're both suffering. They're both unhappy for different reasons and different yeah. outcomes and circumstances and of course in different degrees but still we don't find the rich being yes i am enjoying my life i have no drama everything is fine no so and they're driven by their need to make more and more money even though they have enough for for many many lifetimes there's never enough money there's for never the brain, enough. for the brain there's never enough there's never a relaxation point with money 
But I see it as a, as a lack of security, a lack of trust. Uh, um, you're trying to prove to everyone that you are the richest person in the world. And, and the list that kind of switches. And then I think like each time one of the richest uh, billionaires loses their spot, they get angry. They're like, no, I should be on top. And I, I think that's that's the problem. I mean, with our even our drive for perfectionism, we want to be we want to be perfect, and we can't achieve it. And it's kind of always searching for that that yeah. aim that is always out of reach, no matter how hard we try. Yes, yes, it's very much a contract. The perfectionism is a contract. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The, the the not enough money is a contract. The, uh -huh. Yes, and, and so what happens? I'm, I'm just so curious. What happens if we start to reduce to reduce these contracts, to release these contracts? Mm -hmm. How will people respond if they have just a little more choice and a little more breathing room and a little more space to rest and heal? What would our world be like? How can we do it in terms of our brain? What can we do? And is there like, and you talk about affirmations and exercises and meditations. What can we do to help release that, that pressure that we have within ourselves and to re release those contracts, as you're saying? Yes. Well, a part of what needs to happen is to acknowledge whatever trauma we've lived through. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a way that we, that we need to time travel to our, to our younger selves. Mm -hmm and discover the ways in which our younger selves were left alone. And how do our younger selves need to be accompanied? What do they need acknowledged? What kind of, what happens if we bring warm curiosity to our younger selves? I do this all the time with people and people are so often they say, I'm just so surprised that I matter enough to come back for. There's this sense of like that we all walk around in a way, it's part of this exhaustion. It's a sense of not quite mattering to each other, not, not pausing to be with each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as I've been discovering this, I've been, I've been asking myself, you know, in the moments when someone, uh, I live in a small household with five people in it, and like to begin to pause more and to just enjoy enjoy my moments with the live people when I get to be with them <laughs> just exactly. to put everything everything down put down my books put down my computer put down my cooking pot and and to turn toward the person it's yeah. it's quite a beautiful practice and presence yes yes that's so important and completely present and put away your your smartphone and yes. and your devices and just yes. just kind of be and acknowledge and even even that they said like if you start when you brush your teeth if you're when that's a contract we have with ourselves yeah uh, which becomes a habit and if we just did that uh, mindfully mm. every night then we have a bit of entry into that kind of world of presence. And then the, the great thing is once you practice it, it becomes easier like anything. And it's just like, you just see the rewards there. Mm -hmm. I can talk about myself when um, I've, I, I take nature walks and, and mm -hmm. so on. But ever since I've come like to a, a kind of a spiritual uh, recognition of things, a liberation that I have of releasing my trauma and my contracts, I like that term, uh, of releasing those, I notice things so much more. I notice the birds singing. I notice the the ducks. I I 
I saw uh, uh, ducks uh, copulating, which I had never seen before. And now I know what happens. I know the, the foreplay that they have, which is, and so it's, it's fascinating just the amount of attention we can have. And the, one of the problems with me was I was so obsessed with various other things in my life, including work, inc including personal lives, thoughts, and so on, that essentially did not really matter. What mm -hmm. mattered was really that moment, looking at the ducks and learning from them. <laughs> what a delight. Yeah. What a fun surprise for the world to give us. Yeah, yeah. And I think we are just like, we're always on, on go, 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 but we're also like robots. Mm -hmm. We're just like, uh, just acting and reacting, but we don't really think for ourselves. We don't really feel for ourselves we just like also repeating patterns and I, I see many people who just don't seem like there's a connection to themselves yeah. and so much less with others yeah. and that was even before COVID where I would see people I was like you know what I'd rather just stay in my home and feel comfortable but now I, I miss that too even yeah. if it's on a superficial level I say well at least you know there's contact yes yes yeah. a celebration of the that it's become more rare for us all in some ways. So what about your own personal experience? You, um, uh, you grew up in Alaska, is that correct? Yes, I grew up in Fairbanks, Alaska, in the middle of the state. And it was during the night, I was born in the 1960s. And it, was, and it was a time when many people traveled up to Alaska to work in order to kind of get away from their families in the lower 48. Mm -hmm. people were really trying to give their children a better life. They were trying to separate from old patterns and, and have something different and better for themselves and for their kids. Mm -hmm. And so it was quite, a, quite an interesting place to grow up with, with a lot of like a desire to cut off from transgenerational patterns and to kind of pretend they didn't exist. And of course, the research wasn't there yet to tell us about the impact of transgenerational experience. So people kind of lived in a state of, of optimism about their ability to, to, to leave behind difficult life events. And of course, it was coming out of, you know, it was after, after the Korean War, and it was it was after World War II, and many people had been touched and impacted by war. So the, they were trying to leave behind really big things. Yeah. And so did the settlers. I mean, when you think of them, they came and they tried the same thing of re renewing everything, a promise, hope, but it comes, it has to come with acknowledgement, acceptance of the trauma. And instead, you can't just jump over it or ignore it. And so that's, I think, was, uh, was, uh, was a mistake. But again, we did not have the knowledge there. And their trauma came from previous ones that was uh, goes way back. Yeah. And one of the problems, I think, is, is the issue of blame, whether we're blaming others or ourselves. In either way, in either case, it's not helping at all. It's, no. it's really important to move on and heal. And I think the healing is moving away from blame in yes. all shapes and forms. Yes, yes. I think that's so true. And when we work with blame, um, there's something quite interesting that happens. Because uh, the way that two hemispheres work, they, they're, they're roughly sort of symmetrical, but 
they both see the world in very different ways. Mm -hmm. So, and we're simultaneously seeing the world in both these ways, but we're giving prevalence to one view or another. Mm -hmm. And the left hemisphere is much less neuroplastic than the right hemisphere. It does not like change as much as the right hemisphere does. The right side is more creative, right? So that's but, why it's kind of more open. Creativity is the whole thing, comes through the whole thing, but the right hemisphere sees big picture. And, and is more where intuition can move through. Mm -hmm. So, um, but the, it's more fluid. Left mm -hmm. hemisphere, more static. But the thing that lets the left hemisphere integrate new information better than anything else is blame. Okay, that's what language. It's more language, but it kind of language over and the, blame. <laughs> the intuition. It kind of like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like the inner critic probably comes from more from the left side. Yeah. Right? Yes, yes, because then we're blaming ourselves mm -hmm. and we can integrate that things are going badly. Mm -hmm. Now, what we really need is to be able to mourn that things are going badly. Then we can integrate it with the right hemisphere and integrate it with the whole body and not have to blame anybody. But the, but the, but the blame is big. Blame is really, it also gives you a nice dopamine rush. It feels yes, so it does, good. Yes. And I think it's also a way of uh, avoiding and evading responsibility because mm -hmm. it's so easy to blame others specifically because yeah. then I don't have to be accountable for it. It's not me, it's them. But right. I think it's really looking at it. It's like, well, what can I do? What did I do? What uh, What's my role here? And even if I'm completely innocent, well, how do I move on from this blame yeah. instead of getting stuck in this vicious cycle as well? Yes, no mm -hmm. kidding. Yeah. And so, but as we start to learn that our blame is a kind of a cover up for our mourning, then we can say, I really want to blame my husband. What is it that I don't want to be true? What is it that I'm trying not to mourn? Mm -hmm. And then it comes through. I was blaming him the other day and I stopped and I thought, what, what's trying to come through? And I was like, he is not my father. I am mourning my father's death. My father died maybe 15 years ago. And I still miss him every day. And I still want my husband to be like him so that I don't have to have my father be gone. My husband's lovely. And he's very different from my father. And it's not fair to blame him for not being my father, is it? But once I touch that mourning for my father, then the blame just drops away, just falls away. And I don't blame my husband anymore. We, we live in a society where feelings are not really acknowledged or appreciated and not given the value they should. And so, again, even talking as a, as, as a boy, when you grow up and boys don't cry and those kind of ideas, and it's just horrendous. And I, I tell my son, I have a, a teen son, I say, you know what, cry, you know, if, if that's how you feel. Yeah. That's fine. And, and I, I, I like the, the term of mourning and making sure that we mourn aspects of ourselves, aspects of our lives, as well as when, when we lose somebody dear to us. Yeah. And be open. He he lost last year. He lost his hamster, and uh, it was it was traumatic for all of us. But we were open to the the grief of it, mm. and that's the only way of really moving on. Because yes. many people just want to jump and say, oh, no, we're fine. Everything fine. We won't cry and so on. We, we keep it in. Yeah, we're stoic and uh, tough and so on. And that, that does not help at all. No, it doesn't uh, help at all, does it? Yeah. And people will, you know, uh, speaking of pets and pets dying, people mm -hmm. who have pets die don't want to pay their vet bills, right? Because mm -hmm. they want to have somebody to blame. Mm -hmm. 
It's <laughs> like by by staying angry at the veterinarian, I mean, everything dies. So everybody dies. All of us will die. All of our pets will die. But if we stay angry at somebody who's we feel like was responsible, then we don't have to go into the morning. Keeps us like suspended. It's like keeping the blender going. The blame <laughs> blender keeps the whole <laughs> smoothie all integrated. We don't have to do the morning work. It doesn't have to settle out for us. Yeah, and and one of the things is through suffering is that's when we learn about best most valuable lessons, yeah. and and we we're seeing it right now in the world. We've seen it over the past years, and I I am very hopeful actually. Even though it's it's everything is tragic and horrendous and awful, I'm quite optimistic about it because I say now we are connecting. Now yeah. we know what it feels like to uh, live in a pandemic. And before it was something that seemed far away. And we say, that's not going to happen to us. And I think there is also a contract. We think that we're safe and nothing will ever happen to us. And we'll live forever, happily ever after, which is, again, an illusion. We don't have to prepare. We don't have to prepare, right? And and now we see we do. And we know that anything that happens anywhere in the world will affect us. There's like these waves, these ripple waves that will come to us. And I've never felt this as much as today, nowadays. I feel that too, especially as, uh, and I don't know when our podcast will air, but just in the last week, we've had Russia invading Ukraine and a world response. I mean, the last time Russia went into Ukraine, they just took the Crimea and nobody barely blinked. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the unity that exists, yeah, it's, it's yes. so like, it, it feels so good, you know? Yeah. And, and with, with COVID too, where we say, we know your suffering, we know what that feels like. And, and, and so that kind of solidarity that exists and mm-hmm. most, with most people, not everyone, there yeah. are some exceptions, of course. But I, I think it's that we're united as as as, as humans is very important. I, I saw a video of Carl Sagan who talks about, you know, oh, this yeah. is our world. Mm. And so we're in this, like we're this tiny, tiny dot in this huge expansive expanding universe. Yeah. And so why are we making things so much more difficult for ourselves? Yes. Uh, we should appreciate what we got and really work with it and be mm-hmm. <laughs> be peaceful with each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the thing is that might unite us. I always thought would be maybe aliens attacking us, so we come we oh, come yes. united. But that no, a help. pandemic did it. <laughs> we didn't need aliens. We a pandemic did that to right. to a large extent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I find it also quite interesting. You you live in uh, Vancouver. Yes, in Vancouver, Washington, which is yeah. Vancouver. I'm on the other Vancouver. side. I'm the other oh. Vancouver. Oh, on the Canadian been, side. Yeah, oh, wonderful. <laughs> so we have the place in common, but still, oh. it's not yes, the same place. Our our place names have been stamped by the explorer. Yes, yes, yes. that's right. Sort of like he traveled everywhere, a little bit like a dog peeing throughout its whole journey. <laughs> he he went to his there with the city of Vancouver and Vancouver Island, and then he made it down here and. We had Fort Vancouver, and we have Vancouver Lake, and we have Vancouver, the city. So it's like very many. Very yeah, many. and trying to to leave your stamp on it. Like yes, I was here exactly. first, now this is mine. Right, exactly. <laughs> I, I love it when I see it on the moon when they put the flag on the moon, and it's like, well, this is yours now. Okay, <laughs> I just don't understand the logic of like you know saying like territory this is mine we went to space now it's mine it's like there's this unconscious childish contract right that you say anything i see belongs to me no one can take it away yeah Yeah. (laughs) 
And I think we see that with, with again, money too, that drive for it. We own things, even our, our gadgets. We want more and more of it. And uh, I, once we let go of that, I think that's when really like true happiness can, can come and evolve. Yeah. I think that's necessary yeah. for that. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, an awesome discussion. Um, so I just want to remind the books are so your first book was your resonant self, right? Yes. Your resonant self from self sabotage to self care. Mm -hmm. I think I got a pretty good impression of the ideas that you're dealing with. And again, the unconscious contracts, mm -hmm. trying to release them to free ourselves um, um, by using uh, probably also neuroscience in, in, in different ways of, again, as you explained, the different hemispheres of our brain um, that go with it. And then your second book, uh, Affirmations for Turbulent Times, mm. comes like a blessing nowadays, and mm. uh, we really need that. So um, let's uh, let's leave with uh, maybe a few affirmations that you can you can give us from oh. from your from your book. Yeah. So one of the things that we do with the book is we first acknowledge all the ways that we may have been impacted by trauma. So if today we're we're claiming, you know, our we're claiming peace for ourselves, then we want to say, do you need any acknowledgement that we live in a world that's not demonstrating a lot of peaceful action right now? Do you need some acknowledgement that sometimes it can be tricky to find inner peace? And then once we acknowledge that, then we can kind of step into the affirmation and say, I I am radiating peace. I am, I am a peaceful, I, I carry, I can touch into my peaceful center mm -hmm. and bring peace to the world. Mm -hmm. So both, it becomes much more satisfying if we acknowledge what's true and then step into like, what is our birthright? Yeah. And also the serenity prayer of there are things that we can control and things we cannot and that difference there. And yes, there, the world is turbulent and everything is topsy-turvy, but I have my little haven of peace here that I can, that, that garden that I can let grow. And then that will emanate out and will affect others. So kind of uh, starting from inside out to, mm. to, to make, to bring about change, maybe yeah. not on a large scale, but again, in my personal space and then expand that another way of trying to do that as well. Yes. Wonderful. Thank right. you so much. Thank you so much Thank for an awesome so discussion, Sarah Payton. Uh, and uh, again, your two books, you're an author, you're a certified nonviolent communication trainer. I really like that. I want to mention that international speaker and neuroscience educator. Thank you so much uh, for being on a rash's world. Oh,